0: We don't expect someone to be reading a book and read one word or even one page and understand the meaning of the book. So why should we think that we're going to understand a work of art by looking at it for five seconds, ten seconds? Hi, I'm Alexandra Kitka and this is Ergo. Everyone seems to have an opinion about modern art. They hate it or they love it, they get it or they don't. But why the controversy? What makes modern art different from other kinds of art? And how should we react to it? On this episode of Ergo, we join you on location at the Museum of Modern Art with Associate Curator Thomas J. Lax to answer these questions and more. Hello, Thomas.
1: Hey there, Alex, how are you?
0: First, I want to talk about what it is you do as a curator uh, because I think that that is a word that's kind of thrown around and people don't quite understand what it is you do.
1: So as a curator here, I do several things. I work directly with artists um, to commission them to make new work. I work with artists in their galleries uh, as well as artists and sometimes their estates if they've passed away to bring works of art into the museum's collection Um, And then I also work to make exhibitions. So all of the art that our visitors see on the wall was put there by somebody, and I'm one of those somebodies. Um, So together with my colleagues here at the museum, and there are over 50 other curators who work here at MoMA, we try to make ideas, concepts, and frameworks um, to give our visitors an understanding of what exactly it is that means something uh, about the work that they see that's on view.
0: So, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you work with the Department of Media and Performance Art. That's exactly right. Um, so, what what is that department, and why? What makes it unique from other departments at the MoMA?
1: So, the MoMA's been around for almost ninety years, and the way that the curatorial departments are organized is by medium. There was an idea in the emergence of modern art that art meant something because it was either a painting or a sculpture. And based off of the history of those media, it would mean different things to make a drawing from a photograph. A lot of contemporary artists work between different media, so today the distinctions between them are less meaningful than they used to be. Um, But when this museum was founded almost 90 years ago, the difference between these various ways of working was incredibly important. And so when it started, it organized itself into these different departments. Our department, which is the media and performance art department, actually is the last department curatorially to be founded. It only has existed for just over 10 years. And that's because, first of all, the category of media, which is really kind of video and sound for the most part, wasn't invented until the 1960s. And similarly, even though there's a long history of performances happening, the idea of quote unquote performance art also didn't emerge until the 1960s. Um, So that's why compared to our colleagues who are in the photography department or the drawings and prints department, we kind of arrived late to the game. Um, So what that means for us is that in a lot of ways our department is inventing its own history or it's trying to take the history that exists in different formats from different academic texts, artists own histories of understanding these different ways of working, and trying within the context of an institution to tell a narrative that links all of these different traditions together.
0: I think it's fascinating that you talk about all the different departments and the different mediums that you can use in modern art. Because I think there's a tendency to lump all of it together into just modern art. Um, And in fact, at many art museums that are not specifically geared towards modern art, it is just one exhibition or one area of the museum. Um, So I want to kind of dive right into this conversation and talk about what makes something modern art. I think that it's a popular misconception um, and that people don't quite understand what makes something modern art.
1: So there's a very direct way to answer that question and a more conceptual way to answer that question. The fir- I'll start with the first one because it's a bit shorter. Modern art in its most elemental form is a way of describing art that's made at the end of the 19th century until just after World War II. So it's really um, a description of art made within a certain time period. and what happens after modern art is usually called contemporary art. So the fact that the Museum of Modern Art um, is called that in some ways is a bit of a misnomer because it really should be the Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art since the work that we show here and the work that we collect here at MoMA goes up until the present. There's work that's in our collection that was made in 2017. Um, But to go back to the kind of larger, more conceptual side of things, you have to ask yourself, what happened at the end of the 19th century that caused the shifts that occurred that led to the rise of modernism, which is the category that encompasses modern art? You have, first of all, the emergence of industrialization—you um, have factories that, across the 19th century, are built in places like the United Kingdom as well as Germany—and effectively bring people to the cities in much bigger numbers than they used to be. Many of the people who come to cities are artists, and the work that they do inside those cities is fundamentally shifted by the fact that you have a new mass of people living in a way that they've never really lived before on that scale. In addition, you have new technologies that develop. You have Film in the middle part of the or in the end part of the 19th century and photography in the middle part of the 19th century and the fact that all of a sudden representation isn't something that only people who are specialized um, and trained within a kind of academic formation of learning how to paint are the ones who are depicting the world around them but you have people who are self-taught you have people who are taking images not for the purpose necessarily of making art but for example um, for the purpose of describing and documenting prisoners, um, which is how many of the first photographs were taken, means that the stakes of image making radically shift at that moment. And so I think because of these different historical factors that are happening at that time, the way in which artists are working similarly radically shifts. So you have the emergence of things, like non-representational painting right you have the idea that instead of painting being something at least in the western tradition that has to either be an allegory for a certain moment um, or a picture of somebody that people know painting can now be something that's actually just about the experience of moving paint on the surface of a canvas and so that leads to things like abstraction and the monochrome Um, and so I think that those um, that that Conjunction or that um, intimacy between the social reality shifting and how artists are responding to that um, really gives birth to this thing that we call the modern.
0: Thank you for clearing that up um, and those particular terms. Um, I think that because it's something that we kind of lump together modern art and contemporary art, um, and also there is the fact that those shifts that happened during the modern art period continued into contemporary art. Um, so I think for the purposes of this podcast, we, prob- we are probably going to talk about both um, since a lot of these characteristics carry on to this day. Is that OK with you? Definitely. Um, so I want to talk about a popular thing that people say when they're talking about modern art um, or when, they, when they're looking at modern art in any museum. They say, well, I could do this. Um, and I know there are a lot of different responses, um, but I want to h- hear yours. So what would you say to someone who says, well, I could do this?
1: I guess the first way I might respond is a bit cheekily, which is, but you didn't do this. Um, and I think what that it says is that it's one thing um, to make a work of art. It's another thing to have an idea for a work of art. And I think that is another really important thing that happens at the beginning of modernism, which is that all of a sudden, instead of, the visual result of what an idea is being the most important thing, you have a a shift to the idea for something being equally valued. And I think, you know, if you wanted to pinpoint that someplace, many art historians would say that you could pinpoint that through the work of Marcel Duchamp, who was a French artist who moved to the United States um, during World War II and effectively invented this idea of the ready-made he took objects that existed off of the assembly line and then represented them in the context of a gallery. His most famous, perhaps, work is his fountain, which is uh, basically a urinal that he signed with um, a, a name that he gave to himself, Armut, and then put on its side and then presented um, or tried to present here in New York City but was rejected from presentation. But what's important about that work is that even though any of the three of us could make it, Duchamp was the one who had the idea to make it. And so all of a sudden, you have, instead of the fact of being you know, technically skilled or having a kind of dexterity to depict the world around you, that what becomes more important is to be able to um, take an idea and manifest it in real time and space. So I think that's, um, that's the, you know, the, the longer way I would describe to somebody who says, you know, this is something that I could have done myself. It's like, sure, you could have, but this person is the one who came up with the idea to do it and not you.
0: Now, obviously, I'm not a curator myself, but I also think that when people say something like that, well, I can do that. A lot of times, it's not actually true. Um, I think maybe of something like The Fountain it could be, um, but a lot of modern and contemporary art actually involves a large amount of skill that we just don't necessarily see on the surface. One example I can think of is Mark Rothko and his works of abstract expressionism. Um, and many times, it's just color that you're looking at. Um, and you think, well, any kindergarten kid can paint some different shades of colors on a board. Um, when in fact, the amount of layering involved in what he did and the amount of um, skill that was required to actually make those works is something that most people just could not do. You
1: know, I think you're pointing to something really important, Alex, which is that oftentimes in art, as in life, to make something look easy takes a lot of work
0: most people who are viewing art are not artists and we really have to learn how to view art um, because if we go into an art experience thinking that this is something that anyone could do, well, first of all, we're going to be missing the point. And second of all, we're not going to be paying attention to those little things and we're not going to be able to appreciate the art that we do see.
1: Looking at art is something that is a particular kind of looking in our culture. There's, you know, we're all accustomed to walking around and if we are seeing people, in other words, if we're not blind, to be able to take in the world around us. That's a slightly different experience than sitting in front of a television or going to the movies and taking in the images that appear for you there. But it then is yet another thing from going to a museum. And I think that working in a museum, you have to recognize that people come to the place where you are from very different kinds of backgrounds. Some people have a a kind of comfort and familiarity with what it means to come to the museum and experience that as a kind of social space. Other people, that's their first time. And I think in making exhibitions, you really want to be able to organize shows that speak to people who have all different kinds of experiences because ultimately, the the kinds of looking that are specialized for a museum uh, in many ways are formed by the rest of the world around them. And so I think for even the the kind of specialist audience who can come in and have the analysis of Rothko that you just made, which is a really beautiful one, you want to kind of ask them, okay, so what was Rothko himself looking at when he wasn't looking at other works of painting? And I think that opening up the space of the museum to that larger world and that larger viewpoint is in many ways what the role of historians and curators is.
0: So how much uh, of the responsibility of understanding a piece of art goes to the viewer? And how much of that is dependent on the skill or the ability of the artist themselves? It's
1: a fundamental question I think Alex you just like kind of named the you know one of the main questions at the end of the 20th century um you know there's this kind of common expression that art is whatever you want it to mean um and I think That while increasingly across the 20th century, you have artists who um, believe more and more that the space of interpretation happens in the space of the viewer, um, that basically the viewer completes the artwork, I think that doesn't necessarily mean that the viewer can bring any and everything they want to the artwork. I think that uh, while artistic intention is something that one will never know, what a curator can do, and what a historian can do, and even what an artist does themselves through form, through composition, through the kinds of decisions they make, whether they're unconscious or conscious decisions, are the ways that you can look at and see what are the marks and the signposts for what there is to experience in the act of looking or the act of feeling or the act of hearing, depending on what kind of art it is. And you know where the, the viewer comes in, um, they, depending on what they just saw, who they're with, what other things that they've been thinking about in that moment will be able to in some ways complete the sentence but to complete the sentence means that you know you have to look to see what the first half of that sentence really was um so that where you take it um in some ways is a uh, kind of dance or in conjunction with the artist himself
0: in other words what you're proposing is kind of the midpoint between two extremes you know it's not just whatever the viewer is coming with and it's not just about the artist's intentions it's more of a dialogue between the artist and the viewer.
1: That's a really great way to describe it. I think that the person who tries to facilitate that dialogue is the set of people who work at a museum. And that's what I love working at a museum, is that it's our role to take that conversation and try to make it as alive as possible. In many ways, that's oftentimes it's just about getting out of the way and trusting that the people who come to look at and hear artworks are people who, you know, will bring their full sense of themselves and the knowledge that they know to the table and that the way that you present the artist's work allows for the clearest viewing experience of the work that person coming to see it might have and so you know it's our job to try to make that dialogue not unmediated but mediated in a way that allows people to bring them their fullest selves and for artists to appear in a way that's truest to the ways that they decided to make a set of decisions in constructing their artwork in their studio or elsewhere.
0: Something that I noticed that happens throughout art history but I think maybe more so in modern and contemporary art Um, is that art is used very directly as a response to something happening in that society. Um, You mentioned Duchamp before. That's a great example of that. Um, And so I'm wondering, when we're talking about art, modern art, there's the message and then there's the form. Um, Do you think that those two things are of equal importance? Do you think that the message may be a bit more important? What are your thoughts?
1: Again, you're asking one of the the most fundamental and hotly debated questions that our historians have spent their entire careers battling over. I think that for myself, as an individual person, they're both deeply important, and i that's a position. That's a position that's different from what this institution has stood for for a long time. The Museum of Modern Art, which was a champion of a certain kind of modern art, um, abstract, um, formalist, um, believed that Actually, looking at exclusively questions of color, shape, line, uh, and looking at those things over content, over the message, was what modernism was about. And I think that there have been many critiques of that to say that you know, what's actually appearing inside of the image is just as important, if not more so. Um, and I think that one can have a a dance in which you see them as being mutually informative, so that it's, you know, the way in which an artist takes a set of things available in their world and then chooses to depict them inside of their work is a kind of give and take between how they're experiencing a given object that's in their surroundings or that they seek out and then physically what it, the way it is that they decide to make it. And I think that this this challenge is one that's um, particularly uh, important for artists of color for women artists because oftentimes there's been an easy dismissal of work by artists from those backgrounds because there's a way to read the work as only content right so to say you know you look at it in a picture of um, let's say Barclay Hendricks, a fantastic painter from Philadelphia, who made images of black figures that often were read when he made them as just that images of black figures. Uh, but if you look at the formal ways that he approached that set of questions, the, the importance of the content of who is pictured in them becomes that much more dramatic and um, that much more um, complicated. And I think that, um, you know, that in trying to tease out that. Um, that set of conjoining factors um, is in many ways the kind of pleasure of, of, of making work and the pleasure of experiencing work in the space of a gallery or elsewhere.
0: When we study art from the past as opposed to the present, um, I think that there's this. I- it's easier to look back and look at both the form and the message um, and not emphasize one or the other. Uh, but I think when we're talking about art that was created created now, 2017, there's kind of a danger in, in that we might just look at the message. Um, I think of the culture we have of, um, you can call it like a meme culture, um, where we're very quick to share things and share posts because they uh, are about something we agree with. Um, and I think for that reason, we're not trained to look at art, um, not only for the message that it brings but also for the content. Um, Do you think that there is this danger in glorifying art for its message even if the art isn't necessarily any good?
1: I wouldn't, Alex, say that there's necessarily a danger in that. I think in some ways the fact that Art exists in more reproductions than it ever has before. That people, oftentimes, who are collectors, will buy artworks before actually seeing it in real life, and that many of us experience the most cherished and prized works at a great distance, as opposed to directly in front of us, um, while perhaps I don't think an ideal way to look at art, is a good hook, and I think that that hook of content, let's call it, or of meme culture, as you so nicely put it, is one that we should see as just that, that should be the entry point, that can be a kind of gateway drug into thinking about a more deep and fuller engagement with a, an individual work of art. I think that the, the biggest challenge that you're pointing to is that it's much easier in a time in which something is made to understand something because of the content that you're confronted with, and to not necessarily see some of the structural things that are informing how artists are working. So even though you know one can understand, just to go back to your example of, let's say, you know meme culture, you can understand that an artist like, for example, Martine Sims, who's a young artist who just had a show here in our Emerging Artists series called Projects. She makes work in which the protagonists are often seen um, performing the same gesture over and over again so it's as if you have a kind of gif that's gone wild and so I think there's a kind of simplistic reading that she's making that because of meme culture but I think some of the deeper layers of how an artist is going about making their work, um, the fact that she's making work modularly, right? So it's work that can be seen on multiple platforms in different ways, on different kinds of screens for different kinds of audiences um, is a function also of the culture that she's working in, of the internet and some of those things can be masked by the fact that it is so recently made, and we don't have the kind of um, the distance. And I think what you know, for me, what's great about approaching that is that's what the difference between showing work in the context, let's say, of um, you know, the internet can be from the context of uh, the time of a museum, is that you, in some ways, have a different temporality to kind of situate work within, which isn't to say that you can't do that on the internet, because plenty of good critics are able to do that there too. Um, but in a museum, you can directly place a work by Martine Sims against a work by an artist who made, let's say, Howardena Pindell, who made her videos in the early 1980s. And you can say, oh wow, if you look at these two things, you can compare and contrast and see before you how different these two things are from one another. Uh, And that's the particular pleasure that a place like a museum can offer.
0: I hadn't thought about it that way um, as it being a hook. But now that you say that, I think that you're really right um, because at least when people are doing that, they're taking the time to look at it. They are giving it a chance, To say, um, in, in other words. Um, the, I think the other kind of perspective on that, if you take it in the other direction, um, are people who won't even think about a piece of art because when they look at it for the first time, it doesn't look skillful enough, right? Like we were talking about before, they may think, well, I, anyone could do this. And so then they don't even give it a chance. And I think in that is much more dangerous than what I had mentioned before.
1: I, I think that I will I will completely agree with you on Alex because and I'll tell you what I think the danger is there, is that oftentimes the work that reproduces well, the work that exists on the context in the context of an iPad or on Instagram, um, is work that might be Able to sell well and ultimately allow for the kind of economic values of you know an object of art being a commodity to overvalue it compared to the set of ideas that go behind it. And I think you know that's where you have things like this idea of zombie formalism, the idea that you can kind of take a recipe and Uh, a set of characteristics for what looks good, quote-unquote, and apply that to making abstract paintings in a way that will reproduce well in the context of the internet, but ultimately the set of ideas that are being contested in the canvas or in the work of art are um, just not that interesting. And I think that in this moment where you have so much of a kind of valuation around art in the contemporary art market, where you have people investing in art as a form um, not only of a commodity but also as something that can return your um, monetary investment in a work of art means that those works that are really, that appear to be skillful or appear to um, just look good in the context of um, your, you know, the palm of your hand um, will skew the set of values that ultimately um, a, a public institution like a museum should stand for.
0: It's also kind of arrogant in a sense You know, when you look at an art for the first time, and you, as as someone who's not an artist, assumes they know whether it's good or not before coming to understand it, or even looking at it for more than five seconds. Um, I talked before about art as a dialogue between the viewer and the artist, um, and that was something that was talked a lot about. um, Over the summer, I took a course called Theology and Art, um, and we went to see this play called Indecent it's a Broadway show actually um, and for those who don't know what it is about um, it follows the story of these um, these people in Europe who are putting on a play in a very Jewish neighborhood um, and the play involves a kiss between two women um, and kind of about how that evolved and how it was um, received by different audiences and when I saw the play with this class, um, something that really stuck out to me was how much theater and I guess other forms of art too, are they can't be one-sided. At the end, um, the director came up and he said, "You know, this audience made this performance. Um, every time it's different because the way that the audience receives things is always different, um, which is something that you don't necessarily get in this more static art." Um, but it, it's very true. When you're having a conversation, you can't be arrogant or that conversation is not going to go anywhere. You really have to submit yourself to listening to what the other person is saying and being willing to hear that out, even if it's something that you may not necessarily think is right at first.
1: I think that the format of your podcast lives up to that in a very nice way. And I think what you're, the point you're making is is really true, is that you know, in, in many ways what the experience of finding meaning in a work of art is, is also in many ways about being okay with not finding meaning there. In other words, many of the best artists and many of the best works of art are dealing with questions of uncertainty, of ambivalence, of fundamental doubt. These things that are these negative, have these negative connotations, but not even like negative in a kind of hyperbolic or In an extreme way, it's not like rage. It's you know these things that um, are are these subtle feelings. And how do you, as an artist, take those subtle feelings, which in many ways, as you know, adults structure our everyday lives, right? Like you know whether it's a small decision or you know kind of larger questions um, about who you want to be in the world and how you want to organize your values and priorities. You know, they they are muddled by um, the contradictions and um, the uncertainties that riddle every aspect of who we are and so I think what the best art does is take those things um, take that sense of vulnerability um, and openness the way that you described it and find a frame for it whether it's in a story like a play um, whether it's in an image you know pictorial image um, of a painting um, and and through that experience of inviting you into the dialogue as you so nicely put it um, construct a frame for you to pinpoint some of the shared or even different ways of experiencing um, those kinds of gray uh, feelings that um, are so important to who we are as people.
0: There's kind of a contradiction where people say that uh, art, you know, a, a work of art is worth a thousand words, or an image is worth a thousand words, uh, but. We don't expect someone to be reading a book and read one word or even one page and understand the meaning of the book. So why should we think that we're going to understand a work of art by looking at it for five seconds, ten seconds? Um, and so I think that you know it's quite arrogant, as I said again, um, when when people take so little time to look at something and kind of dismiss it like that.
1: Totally. Did you want to ask a no, question, go Alex? Ahead. Well, no, I, well, I think one of the things that I love about working at a museum that has a permanent collection is that you actually don't only get the experience of looking at things for more than five seconds or five minutes. You And you also don't even just get the experience of going every single day to look at a work that's there, in the, you know, let's say installed in an installation for multiple months or even years on end. But you also get to track something over long periods of time, over a lifetime, over multiple lifetimes. And to me, that experience where you actually get to see an artwork change, I don't necessarily mean materially, although of course that also happens to all objects, is that you know they shift in their physical, chemical properties. But what I'm thinking about more is that, you know, a work that was made five years ago means something different than it was in that moment and i think you can see the way in which that dance that we were talking about earlier between foreign form and content um shifts a bit as the ways of looking at it around it have changed as well and so yeah there's there's a real pleasure and um being the custodian of something whose meaning you will never know because it will outlive you. And so I think it kind of also goes back to the the kind of humility that you were describing before is that artworks in some ways have their own lives, right? That we are in relationship to and are constructed by um, and also attend to, but ultimately um, their their duration, um, their livelihood, whether it's with work that is live art, performance art, or even just a painting um, exists in this temporality that's far bigger, longer, um, more um, geological in its time frame than our lives.
0: So with that said, with things that change in terms of the culture and in terms of society and the fact that most of the time when we're looking at a piece of art, the culture that we're in now might be different from the one that it sprang out of. Um, by, by what standards do you think that um, either a, a person like me or uh, someone who's not an artist um, and then someone who maybe is an expert um, is able to critique that piece of art? I, is, it, is it possible? Can you say that something, uh, that a piece of modern art is good or bad?
1: That's another really good question that in a place like MoMA, every curator would give you a different version of what good and bad looks like. I think, you know, that's, um, there's some people who've tried to replace those terms of good and bad with terms like more or less intense, um, which is a way of acknowledging that taste is totally subjective, right? What we see as good and bad, our judgments that we make are completely informed by our own personal set of viewing and experiencing senses. And so the idea of something being universally good is a kind of fiction. Um, But at the same time, I think that there is an importance for judgment, there's an importance for critique. And so what do you do when good and bad is not good enough? when even less or more intense is kind of too wishy-washy to really put some stakes in the ground. And so I would say, you know, something that for me values, a value that I will stand behind and subscribe to is can you make a case for something? Can you make an argument for something? Um, And even if that's an argument, it can be an argument in words, right? You can make an essay, you can write an essay, you can explain why you believe in something, but it can also be something that, you experience with your body that you have a kind of physical visceral reaction to and that is something that you can name as um, you know m- my left eye twitched in a way that made me know that I was looking at something that was both grotesque and also awesome and that that physical experience is itself information as is itself it judgment that you can pull from to make a case for why something is worthwhile. And so I think that's maybe another alternative way to to describe those categories of good and bad.
0: The Scottish philosopher David Hume um, wrote an essay that has become quite famous in the world of aesthetic philosophy um, called Of Of Standards of Taste. Um, And in this he talks about critiquing beauty and critiquing art more specifically. Um, And although he does say that it, it taste is subjective in the sense that we all come from different experiences. He does talk about this ideal that if we were able to hypothetically um, remove these you know, experiences of our own selves and, and our distractions, um, then there would be some sort of form or some sort of type of beauty that would appeal universally. It would be uniform. Um, and he uses this not to say that, therefore, w- your taste is either right or wrong, But he does it because um, in in the sense, even though your experiences inform your art viewing, being aware of it is also something that's very helpful. Um, Kind of funny example of this is um, the actor from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and he's also in Les Mis, um, Eddie Redmayne. Um, He actually has a degree in art history from I don't know if it's Oxford or Cambridge, but one of the two. Um, And he was on some sort of talk show talking about this. Um, and I forgot the name of the artwork that he s- wrote his thesis on, um, but it, the work is basically just a shade of blue. They invented a new color, a new shade of blue. Um, and he wrote is his...
1: Eve Klein, perhaps?
0: It could be. Yes, that sounds familiar. Um, and he wrote his whole thesis on this. The funny thing is that he's red-blue colorblind. And so here's someone who can't even correctly see the color, which is pretty much the whole thing, um, who was able to somehow write this huge dissertation on on its properties. Um, and so I think that in a sense, being colorblind, you're aware of that. You know that there's something that is gonna distract you from what it looks like. Um, and if we come to art in a uh, so-called humble way, and we're aware of our past experiences with art, we're aware um, of what we usually like and what we usually don't like, in a sense, we can come to a, a better understanding of that art piece and a more accurate way of critiquing art in general.
1: I think that the question that you're pointing to, Alex, is one that many people coming out of disability studies have made really important contributions to, which is that oftentimes the things that are presumed to be deficits or um, to be lax or to be even excessive are themselves vital, critical, key ways of knowing, and um, are themselves the places from which, um, I wouldn't say universal experience can be named, but places from which um, vital and imminent critiques can be argued. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, the idea of universal beauty or even universal um truth in what trying to resolve historical wrongs could be, are, are themselves short-sighted or are themselves um, projects that have a limited um, shelf life. And so that actually finding a way for multiple people to exist within multiple senses of experience is the kind of value and goal that much of what we do together can aspire to and it actually already exists in the world around us. And I think, um, in, in trying to inhabit and encourage that way of being, um, one can actually find, uh, yeah, uh, the, the, the kinds of experiences that, greatness aspires towards that the kind of um mess and smudge and smear and um the generalized anarchy of feeling and looking or not looking and not being able to look um is much of what the the kind of greatest value in the experience of art can be.
0: Another example that comes to mind um, that goes hand-in-hand hand with what you're talking about um, is this Canadian fashion blogger, Molly Burke, who also happens to be blind. And she gets a lot of questions saying, well, you can't even see the colors, so how are you going to know whether something goes? Um, and in her response, she talks about how how when she picks out an outfit, um, she's actually doing something that a lot of people who are sighted will never be able to do, because she's paying attention to not only the colors, but to the textures, and she's really seeing how things go together in a way that's not just on the surface. Um, And I actually think, now that I say that, that this kind of goes back to the formation of modern art in the first place, because modern art really happened at a time when our history and our culture was suffocating in some way. There was total war, and... Um, there, there were all these things that were hindering our culture from being able to see something. And so what these artists did w- was that they took control of what they could control, um, and they took these new mediums. Um, Duchamp took the materials that were available in a consumer time of history, um, and he created something that was a statement beyond just trying to make something, quote-unquote,
1: beautiful. I think Duchamp is a good person to come back to here because many of his works were themselves circular he was interested in rotaries he used bicycle wheels he used these objects that themselves went around in uh, a kind of ongoing and non-linear fashion and ultimately history is something that while we presume it to be something that moves progressively towards some ultimately better goal is, at least as we've known it from Einstein's time, if not before in other world cultures that believed in the cyclical nature of time, something that is more constructed through folds than it is through something that's a a, a straight and never finishing point. Um, And I think that in terms of, what we've been talking about today, um, to think about the past that lives with us in the present through individual artworks is a way to to describe the modern project. as something that has yet to come to an end. Um, I guess in some ways, much like this conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, good note to end on. Um, so obviously we've just scratched the surface of these questions that we're asking. As you said, these are questions that are being asked by curators themselves and probably will be for dozens and hundreds of years. Um, So do you think that there are any resources you can point to um, for people who want to learn more about modern art um, and its role in society?
1: The Museum of Modern Art is one place to start and I'd be very happy if some of the folks who are listening out there came on free Fridays. The museum is open Fridays after 4 o'clock till 8 o'clock, and people can just come, wait online for a little bit, and be able to access all of the exhibitions and the performances that are happening here on a given Friday. There are also some amazing programs that are organized um, specifically for teenagers, and so those are all listed on the museum's website and are some of the best programs out there in the city, I think. And uh, beyond that, um, you know, I think starting with the world that's immediately around you. So, you know, um, trying to figure out the questions that animate you and um, the ways to pursue those by looking at things in more detail that surround you in your everyday lives um, is a kind of simple but universally available way to keep this conversation going.
0: Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Alex.
0: That's it for today's episode of Ergo. If you want more information about the Museum of Modern Art, you can go to moma.org. That's m-o-m-a.org. Um, and if you're a teen and you want to know more about that, you can follow the Instagram page. You can also donate to our GoFundMe page, which will be in the description of this podcast. Remember, we're at more uh, platforms than ever before, and we also have all of our Season 1 on YouTube as well, so you can check that out if you've missed any episodes. If you want to know more about me, you can go to my website, alexandrakitka.com. That's A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-A-K-Y-T-K-A dot C-O-M. Thank you.